Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Speaker Series Rewind. This is the final episode of season one. And before we get into the content, I just want to thank you all for listening to our very first season and our very first podcast here at High Alpha. It's been a lot of fun putting this together and revisiting some of our favorite interviews from our Speaker Series events with our listeners. After today's episode, we're going to take a little bit of a break and come back in February with season two of Speaker Series Rewind. Season two is a peek behind the curtain into everything venture capital. We're highlighting conversations with leading investors from Foundry Group, Emergence Capital, Bread and Butter Ventures, and so much more. And I'm really excited to share these episodes with you in February. But for today's episode, we're headed back to March of 2018 for our speaker series with Sarah Lacey. Sarah is the founder behind Pando, a venture-backed technology news site founded in 2012, and Chairman Mom, an online community for working professional women. Sarah is an author, has an impressive background in journalism, and is a leading advocate for women in business. And in this episode, you'll learn about the notable moments in her career, her passion for empowering professional mothers. So with that, let's jump into the episode. So how many of you all know who Sarah is? I'm curious by a show of hands, right? And and. Okay, that's pretty good. We do have a thing at High Alpha with this kind of right angle hand as, as opposed to the 180 degree hand. So it's like hard to kind of figure out. Anyway, so when Jerry Hayes called and, and said that Sarah was going to be coming to Central Indiana and, and speaking at an event in Bloomington and over at Launch Fishers and if there'd be any interest in us plugging into that, we said yes and we said yes quickly. Personally, I'm a big fan of Sarah's and I, I honestly she's informed a lot of my worldview around tech and the changing landscape there over the last several years so a known quantity to me and I'm sure to many of you as well. All right so I'll I guess I'll start from the back so Sarah wrote this book she's written lots of stuff but most recently she wrote this book a uterus is a feature not a bug which is a pretty provocative title and looking forward to kind of double clicking into that later today but she has been in the business I guess 20 years give or take Makes, it makes me feel old to say that because I've been in the business 20 years, so I can relate. And has occupied a variety of, I would call them like high pedigree roles. So Bloomberg, TechCrunch, before founding her own really successful and influential media property, Pando Daily. So I'm not going to steal all the biographical thunder, but just to credentialize her a bit, she knows her stuff. The format for today is going to be a little different than kind of normal. As those of you who uh, join us frequently we either do kind of a protracted fireside chat or we'll have more of a one-to-many presentation. This is going to be like a dash more informal, which for those of you who know me know I can get comfortable with that pretty quickly. Sarah's just going to riff, and I think we'll probably benefit from hearing a little bit about her background, but then more specifically digging into some of the kind of meteor topics that she lays out in her book. So without further ado... Sarah, I'll turn the kind of conceptual mic over to you. Thank you. <laughs> it's like you've now set up a challenge for me in saying the applause has to be held. Like, I now feel like I have to say something that's going to make someone in this audience scream before <laughs> the end. So I'm so excited to be here. One of the, I love writing books. I hate promoting books, but the only part of the promotion that I like is getting to come to places that I don't normally have an excuse to go to. When I feel so passionately about, you know, 
just the whole mission about entrepreneurship, not on the, I grew up in Tennessee. You know, I was, (laughs) see, that's not enough. I'm gonna have to do something more. And you know, when we did Pandaland for several years, we always, we did it in Nashville. We did it in Chicago. We always did it in cities that were not coastal cities. It almost bankrupted us. It was a horrible business idea, but mission wise and conceptually, it was so awesome. So like, I want to, talk about myself as briefly as possible and make this as interactive as possible because like I, you know, I would love to hear what's on you guys' mind and answer not only questions about the book or whatever, but just like, what the fuck is going on in Silicon Valley right now? Because it is simultaneously the best of times and worst of times. And it's the weirdest place. I've been there 20 years. It's the weirdest I've ever seen it. So don't feel like you have to ask me about the book. You can ask me about like Uber or Facebook or whatever you want. And unfortunately, I'll be completely honest and probably get in trouble, but that's the only way I know how to roll. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit about me first. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I, there was, you know, like a lot of founders, there was nothing about my childhood that would have made you think I would end up doing what I ended up doing. With the exception of, I had a really phenomenal working mother and she was a teacher. And I know generally in our society, like we don't see teachers as these all powerful beings, but like they really are in schools. And like when you have an amazing teacher, like that person can make a like, just an imprint on you that you carry through the rest of your life. And my mom was that kind of teacher. Like there's, you know, women I know who've gone on to be CEOs of massive companies that like still talk to me about the impact my mother had on them. And um, I was lucky enough to have my mom as a teacher, but well before that, when I was in kindergarten, I was the youngest of five kids. She started working when I was in kindergarten and I went to the school that she taught at. And I was sick one day and my mom had always been a stay-at-home mom before that. She had no idea what to do with a sick child. And so she brought me to her sort of last period senior English uh, class where I believe she was teaching um, Dostoevsky to seniors who did not want to learn about it. And, you know, I was, she put me in the corner of the room with a desk and some crayons and begged me to like just behave <laughs> that I could go home and get to bed because she had nothing, to, no place to put me. And, you know, of course, what did seniors do? They tried to like maximize the distraction of the equivalent of a bird flying in the room, which was, you know, what I was as a five-year-old in the corner of the room. And my mom held the room in this amazing way. She was not a screamer. She was not a teacher who would make threats. She would just sit there and softly say, this is all going to be on the test and you can choose whether or not you want to pass the test. And I don't remember this, but my mom says that at the end of that class, I went up to her in awe and said, I want to be in charge of something one day. And that has to do with what gave me the confidence to do all of the audacious things I've done in my career as a woman. But it also really has to do with sort of what drove me to write this book. I mean, my mom was my female role model. And one of the things that I think is so important is over the course of this book tour, people keep asking what we can do to change things. And I mean, one of the most important messages is everyone is a role model for someone else. And it's like the role of role models, whether you're a man or a woman and how you think about diversity and how we encourage people to bring their whole selves to work and not feel like part of it has to be left behind is like something every single person in this room can do every single day the same way you know my mom did in that setting. So I moved, I became a journalist, I was covering finance, I graduated college in the late 90s and everything was happening in Silicon Valley. I mean it was easily, I was in Memphis covering like agribusiness, you know, 
companies going public in 18 months was far more exciting. I did. I went to Rhodes College, which is where my dad taught. I had two teachers as parents. Um, and so the second I got a chance to go out to Silicon Valley and I got a job for a tiny publication, but they paid me a shitload of money because it was 99 and like you could not find journalists in Silicon Valley because you had whole magazines that were the size of phone books. I mean, people were leaving banking to go into journalism. It was crazy. And so I moved there, the absolute peak of the bubble, which was an amazing experience. And then, you know, really dug in and built a lot of my career and reputation during the crash, which was also an amazing experience because a lot of national publications pulled reporters out of Silicon Valley in the crash. And, you know, the sources and the trust that you build when everything is falling apart, you know, really gives you even more insider access than the sources that you can build when things are, everything is great. I wound up getting to Business Week, which was amazing. And I had thought in my mind, I was working my whole career to get to either the Wall Street Journal or Business Week and stay there for the rest of my career. And, you know, by the time I did, media was a very different thing. Um, so I, one of the stories that I started working on a lot there was about in you know, the early 2000s was about you know, the early seedlings of Web 2.0 and social media. And everyone in the national press back in the 2006-ish era was so psychologically burned from the dot-com bubble. Like People had all of these clips that they were basically embarrassed of and they could no longer show people because people had been so wrong about their optimism. And I was in this rare position where I was young enough, good enough journalist, I was spending all this time with people and I was seeing it. I was always one of those journalists who's out of the office. And you know, I really risked a lot in writing about these companies from an early time. I mean, the first time I ever interviewed Mark Zuckerberg, he was 19 years old, and like I called Facebook and he answered the phone. So, you know, I knew these companies really early on, and I was one of the only journalists who wanted to talk to them, but I was also one of the only journalists they trusted. So I did a cover for Business Week that about that that broke internal sales records for the month of August, which isn't as impressive as it sounds because it's kind of a dead month, but I still cling to it, and was the most controversial cover they had had since the like mid-90s death of an icon black Apple cover that they had done in sort of the nadir of, of Apple. We got so much hate mail. It was like, re it was the first time I was a subject of an absolute shitstorm and viscerally experienced people hating me. Literally for the cover design? Like, what well, a lot of it had to do with the cover design, but it was mostly because I was saying these companies could be worth money. Yeah. That I was saying consumer internet companies yeah. could be worth money again. And I remember the sort of the numbers I threw out, which people were so pissed about. I said YouTube could go for 500 million and people like lost their shit. And, and like literally like later that year it was sold for three times that. Like if anything, I was conservative. <laughs> and like, you know, and so then that led to this like amazing sort of once in a lifetime for my age and experience book deal with Penguin. And they um, commissioned me to sort of write this inside story of how people started believing in the web again and what happened during that dead time no one covered. And it was, I was making less than half of what every man in the bureau was making. And it was an easy sort of no brainer for me to quit and just do that book full time. And I remember all these senior editors at Business Week lectured me about how I was throwing away my career because none of these companies were gonna still be in business by the time the book came out. I mean, it's like that's how much people did not believe these were real companies. It was insane. 
And so that, then I left from there, and then I, I joined TechCrunch early on, which, you know, Michael Arrington was one of the only other people who was really bullish about the early days of Web 2.0. And so we tended to kind of be the only two people on this. And there was so much news in that book that he never even uncovered at TechCrunch. And so he sort of spent, I, I guess, like a year trying to get me to join him. And there were a lot of people who said, then I should start my own company. But I didn't really see a hole in the market. Like I didn't, I liked doing big in-depth journalism and that was not what blogging was and that was not what the market wanted. And so I thought I could do more by joining TechCrunch. And so I helped build TechCrunch, which was an amazing experience. And then after we sold to AOL, I was furious we sold to AOL. I was crying on the phone to Mike the night before begging him not to do it and he wouldn't listen. And after we sold, he wanted to be a VC. He didn't want to run it anymore. And he wanted me to take over as the editor-in-chief, which he tried to have conversations with me about before. And there was something that was very resistant in me about that. And I think some of it might have been sort of a gendered confidence issue on my part. I was the only woman who had survived at TechCrunch. Like, there actually, when I started there, there was a poll of how long it would take for the abusive comments in the community to drive me out of the publication. So part of it was probably an issue where I, I didn't feel like I I had the authority to sort of be the spiritual head of that organization. Oh, it was from your perspective, not my yeah. perspective. Oh, no, yeah, no, he was super, no, just how, how much abuse I could take, okay. basically, which turned out a lot. And so he kind of finally convinced me because he was going to leave, and he thought I was the only person who could sort of maintain this insider but still punching people in the face integrity of the site. And I agreed. So I, I agreed to become the editor-in-chief. This was when I was... Five months pregnant, I think we had this conversation with my first child. And but we decided not to announce anything until after I'd come back from maternity leave because both of us believed all these lies of motherhood that like, yo, you'll be transformed the second you hold that baby in your arms, you won't care about anything else, and you'll never sleep again, and you'll be dead, and you'll show up to meetings with misbuttoned shirts and vomit, and like you won't be able to function. Like we both believed this shit. And so he was just like, you know, let's wait to announce it. So I Right before my due date, like the whole company goes into like a total meltdown. Mike gets kicked out of the company by Ariana Huffington, who takes it over. Mike and Heather are trying to buy back the company from AOL, which was never going to happen because they sold it for so fucking cheap. AOL was never going to sell it back. It was such a good asset. And I mean, everything I told Mike a year ago had happened. So anyway, when so I'm walking around, I was like one of those pregnant women who had like low-level contractions for like four weeks. Mm -hmm. And it kept just being like, it's, I imagine that's what it's like to like date someone that you want to propose to you. And like anytime they like sit you down for dinner, you're like, yes. <laughs> like, like I kept getting really excited and then they would go away. And I was like, fuck. I was like doing acupuncture. I was doing all the San Francisco things you do in that situation. And I, so I was walking around like the Westfield Mall, like just trying to get like half-assed contractions to turn into a baby. And, and bear in mind, this pregnancy was pretty, like, insane because I, like, I went to five continents when I was pregnant. Like, I mean, I, my, the opening of the book is my in utero baby and I getting kidnapped in Nigeria. Like, it had been a lot of shit during this pregnancy and, like, I was ready <laughs> to end it. So we, so I'm walking around the Westfield Mall and I'm talking to Mike and he's like, oh, I think Tim's going to sell us back the company. And I'm like, I think he's telling you that and I think that's never going to happen. And then I'm like, hang on. Mark Andreessen's on the other line, and he's like, we will give you the money to buy it back if you and Heather run it. And then it's like, hang on, you know, Jim Breyer's on the other. Like, it was like this crazy shit show because people in the Valley loved TechCrunch, and they thought it was so necessary to the ecosystem. And it was, I mean, it was a big deal when that was all going down. 
we had one power play, which was Disrupt, was going to be held the Monday after all this shit was going down. And Mike and I had asked every single person to speak. I was going to be there because I was going into labor. But we were like, what if we don't show up? And Heather had closed, who was the CEO, had closed all the advertisers. We had like $9 million in advertising. So we were like, what if the three of us don't show up? I mean, I was already not showing up. But what if we don't show up? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Are they going to set this money on fire? And how much of an amazing press event would it be? We just said no. That was the plan. Eric Schoenfeld, who was another senior editor who was in New York, sat down with Ariana and cut a side deal and basically said, not in these words, I imagine, but in my imagination, this is what happened. If you totally fuck over Sarah Lacey while she's in labor with this baby and give me her job, then I will show up to disrupt and I'll lead the conference. Hmm. So finally went into labor, came out of labor, no job. Crazy. Welcome to working motherhood in America. So they rapidly figure out what's happened. Everyone's losing their shit on Ariana. She had no idea what she was walking into. I mean, it was, I don't like her for a lot of reasons, but this was not a case where she set out to fuck me over. I think she just genuinely did not understand the internal politics of TechCrunch. They, I mean, she was calling me like every day, offering me larger sums of money to stay at the company. Like they definitely were trying to make it right, but the one thing they wouldn't do was fire the guy who had taken my job and give me that job. And I had this moment where, you know, I'm opening the box of price upon request baby loafers. She's foreboding that she sent my child that he never wore once. <laughs> um, like, like brass buckles. Like what? And I'm just like, you know, everyone tells you when you have a baby, what you want is security and what you want is stability and your priorities have to change and you can't take the same risks that you took before. And my experience was very different. I thought, I'm this baby's female role model. You know, going back again to role modeling. Do I want this child to see me go work at a place that at my weakest possible moment took my job from me because of money? Like, and I also thought AOL had done so much damage to this brand in the month of this shit show. If I'm going to be away from this baby for 60 to 80 hours a week, it has to matter and it has to mean something. And I think if Ironically, I wouldn't have lost the job if I hadn't had a baby, but if I didn't have that baby, I probably would have gone back. And so instead, I took my baby and I had no family. I had no nanny. I literally took my baby fundraising with me. And there are all these investors who said it's the only time they've ever had a newborn in a pitch. We raised two and a half million dollars oversubscribed seed round from like every powerful billionaire you can think of. I did not, I it was that list. I elected not to read it, but you should mention some of the names because it's- Half of them I don't speak to anymore. Definition of, <laughs> or at least it was an all-star cast. Literally, half of Facebook's board was on our cap yeah. table. Like, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was, it was, you know, Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, Jim Breyer, you know, David Z. I mean, it's just, I mean, it was every major person. And that was my sort of strategic thing is I was like, if we're going to be conflicted, let's be conflicted with everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think Sequoia is the only major firm that we didn't have any, anyone as even either angel wise or as a firm investment from. And one of the partners wanted to, but the other, they wouldn't let him do a, a private deal. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a ridiculous cap table. Half of the people I don't speak to anymore. There's only one who is an investor in my new company because I took a very different strategy with Chairman Mom, which is my new company, just went into private beta, where I, we have 13 investors, we only have two white men. 
So all, I had all white men on my, like we had to organize the marks. That's how undiverse my first cap table was, you know? And so it's like this one, it's like, you know, there's like slots for two white men and you guys have to slug it out. Mm. A lot of them did not want to invest in me again. But so it was, you know, I would have never, I thought becoming a mother, the one thing I would definitely be disqualified from is starting a company. And I would have never done it if I hadn't become a mother. See, I knew someone. Roots count as a plot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to disallow that, unfortunately. No, I saw a pregnant woman walk off the elevator and I was like, she's a superhero. Like, I felt like when I was, and not everyone has great pregnancies, so I acknowledge that. But I felt like it was the, I could suddenly shoot webs out of my palms. Yeah. Like, I felt like it was a superhero origin story. Like, I never felt so confident or powerful. Or like, I mean, it's what I've been able to accomplish since becoming a mother. And then, you know, after a few years being becoming a single mother, there's so much I can do. I am so much stronger. I give so less fucks. I am so much more productive. I'm such a better manager. I mean, I can't believe I spent 15 years of my adult life being terrified of motherhood, which is why I wrote the book. So, oh God, I stepped on someone's applause. Which is why I wrote the book, because I kept talking to women and they were had the same fears that I did and they believed all the same lies. And I was like, no, you're gonna be so much better. And they were like, I don't believe you. No one's told me this. And so I was like, I guess I gotta put it in a book. And I did, you know, shitloads of research and, you know, like proved through data that like I'm not an outlier. This is just a country that hates working mothers. And it's a there's sexism everywhere, but the anger towards working mothers is a uniquely American thing. That is why we are the only country that doesn't offer paid leave. Because this country wants to drive women out of the workforce. And that is the most vulnerable moment when they can do it. 85% of women in this country do not have access to any paid leave. The staggering statistic is 40% of Americans think it's bad for society if women work. Now, like, how many people do you guys know that even have the luxury of being a single income household? It is incredibly cruel. So that's what led me to write the book. Panda was an insane, I mean, it's still around, but it's slightly less insane. We, over the course of six years, I think good journalism companies, particularly ones that are tied to ecosystems, whether they're small like us or even big like the Washington Post, I think good journalism companies kind of become the room of requirement for what that ecosystem needs. I think when TechCrunch was being built, what was needed was someone to be a champion of Web 2.0, although TechCrunch was always very hard on companies as well. There was definitely not a sense of, it was all very cheerleading, but But it it was in general. an aspirational thing. We raised our seat around, is TechCrunch gonna cover it? Yeah, and it was the sense of, in general, we believe in this is a force for good. I think, for better or worse, the sort of room of requirement needs for Pando has been to be the conscience of Silicon Valley. And that's been a really hard life for the last six years. You know, as I said, like, I mean, we've become really synonymous with the earliest people who aggressively called out bro culture. You know, the number of people that I was for many years close friends with who, you know, I don't speak to anymore, even investors of us who actively tried to run us out of business or, you know. Are those people that wrote you off or that you wrote off? There's not a writing off thing because they're terrified of me. 
Like writing off implies dismissive. It, it's more of like a war. It's more of like a war. Like they're, everyone wants adversarial journalism until it costs them money. So there was nothing different about people didn't realize they were the red lightsaber guys until it was too late. That's a lot of what happened. Right? It's who thought Facebook would be the most evil company in America all of a sudden? Like, it's weird. So, so it was a hard situation, you know? Because, like, still, even when Panda was funded, we still felt, gr- felt great about tech as a force for good. And one of the biggest insights I think Pando had early on was how tech was increasingly becoming the biggest force in politics. And that was, like, a kind of... We actually ended up buying this other company that did more political journalism called Not Safe for Work Corp. And that was seen as sort of a contrarian weird thing. Because for a long time... Tech wanted nothing to do with politics. There really was this like, oh, you guys are fucked up in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this whole thing, and it was during the, the, the SOPA campaign, where Hollywood knew how to use lobbyists. And tech got run over because they didn't. And that was the moment when you started seeing the seeds of like Google becoming the largest corporate lobbyist in America. And actually, these companies hiring people out of government, which was crazy to think about years ago. And we sort of saw that early on and, and really invested in that, which is where a lot of our you know, reporting about what was changing in this ecosystem came from. But you know, it was hard. I feel like Silicon Valley over the last six years has really broken my heart in a lot of like really deep ways. I feel like a lot of individual people in Silicon Valley have. I mean, to, over six years to go from, you know, Travis Kalanick being at my house for bar- barbecues to putting threats out on my children, that's a pretty shocking transition to go through. We, over the, the course of six years, I had to fire three board members. We've had $400 million in threatened lawsuits, and we've never changed a word of our reporting. And we have stared them in the face and welcomed this to t- them to take us out of business. It's it's you know it's been pretty it's been a pretty crazy ride and a pretty eye opening ride. Yeah, it's it's remarkable, and you seem to not be any of the worse for the wear as a result of it. Because of my kids, I mean, I don't know how you go through something like that if you don't have because my marriage didn't survive it. I don't know how you go through something like that if you don't have something like children. I mean, you can have the worst day in the world and you go home and your kids are excited to see you and there's nothing that can pull you out of that shit to that degree, like nothing. And if I didn't have sort of that balance, I think I would have worked every moment of every day and I think all of it would have been so much more devastating. And frankly, I don't think I would have stuck to my guns as much as a journalist because like when there's billions of dollars in the line, the emotional manipulation that goes on is so extreme. I think there probably would have been times I had backed off. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you have one of your children who you love more than anything in the world tell you they hate you and you have to stand firm and continue to punish them, like some stupid bro telling you he hates you is like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I can relate. My children say ugly things to me. <laughs> How old are your children? It's going to take too long to answer that question. Do you have that many? 13, 11, 9, 6, 4, and 2. Oh, you're yeah. so lucky. Can we start rocking the Q&A right now? Yeah. Is that okay? Let me say two things about Chairman Mom, because that's my new company, oh, just course. to like yeah, finish yeah, yeah. the arc. Um, so I, the experience of writing this book 
everything else. Everything I learned data-wise about writing this book and like deeper in the book, I actually go to other countries where they there's still sexism, but they don't have the bias against working mothers to see like how things were different. And so it's like I got so deep down all this stuff. And I saw over and over again through data that like when when any oppressed community, but particularly women, come together and spend time together, it's amazingly transformative. And just share experience and understand they're not alone. That seems like so not a revolutionary transformative thing, but it really is. And it's really at the heart of what creates major social change. And so I started doing this dinner series in my house once a month about a year ago. And it was at, it was when Panda was fighting off a legal battle and we had no money. Like for real, a repo guy showed up to take my minivan. Like, cause I was indemnifying a reporter and not paying myself. And it was like, it was a mess. And I was so pissed about something happening and I wanted to do more to support women. And I was like, okay, like I don't have any money and like I can't invest in anyone and we're not hiring and what can I do? And I was like, I have like a dining room. So like, you know, I'm going to have a monthly dinner here where, and people show up at like 6.30 and they don't leave until like, the last time they didn't leave till four in the morning. I had a parent-teacher conference at seven in the morning. I was the parent who showed up drunk to the parent-teacher <laughs> conference. That's how good a mother I am. And it's like the women in this group are, are, include every woman who has come forward bravely to say anything. I mean, they include women of all generations, their founders and their VCs. And I saw this transformative effect happen in my dining room, 14 people every month being together and what they felt empowered to do as a result of that. So Chairman Mom is my, my attempt to scale that. And so it's a subscription community. Right now we're in private beta, so it's free for 90 days, but ultimately it'll be $5 a month because we want to be able to build a business for our women and not for advertisers. Like if you build a business for advertisers, you have to make people feel like shit about themselves, which is why so many mom groups are toxic. Like we can actually build a site where people can only feel great. And it's curated question and answer designed towards helping women, working women, you don't have to be a mom to, to be a member, to help working women solve the hardest questions they face. So it's like, if you wanna know like which restaurant near you has a changing table, like you should be a member of Winnie because like they cover the breadth of it and they're a phenomenal company, we do not do that. But if you want to ask a question about, you know, a, a spouse who's cheating on you, if you want to know how to protect yourself before a divorce, if you want to know what you should have documentation-wise before going to HR about a sexual harassment complaint, if you want to understand how to raise a transgender child in this day and age, all the hard questions you can't talk about on other social networks, and frequently women don't have anyone else they can talk to about in their real lives, that's what Chairman Mom is for. We have a couple hundred, okay. and we've just been doing it off our newsletter. It like, goes against every instinct I have not to like publicly be driving more people to it. We've only been in private beta for a few weeks, and it's, I mean, we had, you have to put down a credit card even though we don't charge you because we don't want to like face that hurdle later. And I mean, the first couple hours after we launched, we had more than 100 women sign up and put down credit cards essentially to answer questions. Like, that's kind of crazy. Like, people want this thing to work so badly in a way that I haven't experienced that's with really things I've built before. Our engagement rate, by which I mean someone who's asked or answered a question, is north of 30%, yeah. which is crazy yeah. for a community. And the level of openness women have in talking about the extreme life experiences hmm. has been really amazing. We have per thread anonymity. So you can have your identity yep. on the site, yep. but then when you need to go anonymous. It's kind of a Quora-like. 
Yeah, you can't. Except our anonymity is really good. Like, we don't know who you are. Yeah. Like, literally, I ask and answer questions, and my team doesn't know it's me. Really? That's cool. When do you anticipate you'll open it up to the masses? Probably early April. Okay. In a, in a great bit of planning, I think right now we're planning on doing it on my daughter's birthday. So that'll be a busy day for you me. You won't forget. <laughs> I know. That actually is probably a strategic way to make me not forget the date. But we're learning so much and we have so many, we've made so many product tweaks already. We have so many more we want to make. And it's like, we think we can kind of get it all done by then and then throw it out in the market. It. But it's like, there's certain, even in the sort of early Facebook sort of ad tests that we've done, there are certain things that it's like, you just put that like, there's this place in Memphis, this Botanic Gardens, I took my kid, and they have this koi pond. And it's like, they'll, send, they'll sell you a bag of pellets for like a dollar, but I think no one does it. Because if you actually buy the bag of pellets, and you like put one out, it's like there's koi on top of you. Like they're so aggressive. Like they have starved these fish. And then like ducks come out of nowhere. Like a duck almost took my daughter's hand off. It was so terrifying. We, the three of us were shell shocked, and we were like, we are never feeding What's these the goddamn fish again. I know. It's our stick. It's our stick. It's like that ducks and Elvis. But it's like that's how I feel. Like what we've seen with Chairman Mom on Facebook is, it's like we'll put one sort of small ad test. That's like a message like, why isn't it ever a wicked stepfather? Hmm. And it's like the koi go crazy. Mm-hmm. There's so many groups no one has built anything for. Proud single mothers. Yeah. The koi go fucking nuts. <laughs> what I've started doing, I think it's such a, I mean, to me, building an, a subscription community versus an, in a world of ad communities is like defying gravity. I feel like it is just, there's so much I can do with that that's so amazing and one of the things is I but you're follow, probably on the right side of history there that's the good news yeah well so I follow all of these different other mom groups and anything I see in social media or that comes in my inbox that has like a negative or like destructive subject line like I saw one that's just like why would you give your child you know a name of a fruit and it's like, because it, they're your fucking child. You can do whatever you want. Or like I saw one that was like, who loses the most in divorce? And it's like, why would you say that? And so we, now what I do is I literally call my marketing guy and we do the flip of it. And that's all of our marketing. So it's like, instead of like, who loses the most in divorce? We put out a campaign that said, my divorce is the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Koi fish. Mm. It's so great. <laughs> it's like, Pando is going to war with the most evil, powerful forces in America every day. And Chairman Mom is giving ammunition to the most positive force in America today. It's the same fight on different battlefields. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Can you sign, I mean, you got the whole Launch Rock thing going on. (laughs) I can go like sign up and be notified or you can go to like i'll give them like the secret like you can go to beta.chairmanmom.com go. and sign up and, and i would love to have more people not from the coast yeah. we, we had a thread in there the other day where someone was like how much do you make because she was just like everyone keeps telling me i need to advocate for myself no one will talk about salary yeah. i have no idea what people make and so all these women are like telling everyone their salary and describing what they do and where they do it and one mom came in towards the middle of the thread and was like I hate this thread because everyone is making six figures. And I think that's like bullshit. And this is the most 1% group. And I was like, 
Yes, but I think a lot of these people live in New York and San Francisco. Yeah. So it's like I would love to have like more people in the community who represent. We like, will a drive that swap. median income level down. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, your minivan probably won't be getting repossessed because the cost of living is reasonable. <laughs> That's good. That was a good one to end on. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of enterprise cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Speaker Series Rewind. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And you can always subscribe and find additional content by visiting highalpha.com slash podcast. We appreciate any reviews to help us reach more awesome people like you. We'll catch you next time for season two of Speaker Series Rewind after our brief break.